0: So we were scheduled to have a treat today. Our own Richard Peace was scheduled to preach. Unfortunately, Richard got diagnosed with shingles, which is, which is bad, but he is fine and he is on the mend. Um, his doctors say that he's no longer even contagious, but we decided to exercise caution. So you get no treat today. Um, just boring old me, and I am sorry about that. But I, I want to begin today with a remembrance. So a few years ago, I, I taught a Sunday school class for 13 and 14-year-olds. We were talking about the Bible and about how it teaches us about God, and I, I asked them to tell me about a, a story or a Bible verse that revealed something to us about the nature and character of God. Well, perhaps to no one's surprise, the first story that came up was the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I can't tell you how pleased I was because this parable fit perfectly with my purposes. I had all the fodder that I needed, and I went on and I went on until the kids turned blue in the face. Perhaps this also surprises no one. (laughs) But it's easy to see why today's gospel lesson was at the top of the kids' list. Even for people who know nothing about the Bible, this parable of a man and his two sons is a familiar tale and a beloved one. For Christians of all sorts, this beloved tale deeply informs our vision of God And of God's love for wayward humanity, or at least I hope it does. But my fear as a preacher is that we sit a little too comfortably with this parable. Many of us know it just a bit too well. We know it so well that we we settle down with it like a cup of warm milk before bedtime. We simply fall asleep with the cozy good news. And when this happens, when we get caught up in the warm, fuzzy feelings that this parable brings, then it is easy to miss the shock and the scandal of this little story of a dysfunctional family. For really, there is all sorts of tragedy here. This is not just a story of love and forgiveness. This is a story about estrangement alienation and bitter, bitter resentment. So let's take a step back. Let's try to wake ourselves up from our slumber. Let's try to be shocked again. As this story begins, we are told about a man with two sons, where the youngest son has asked his father for his share of the inheritance before his father's death. Now, of course, just and like in our time, this is a preposterous request. The younger son should have no real expectation that this would ever, ever, ever happen. For at the very least, this would have been a major, major production. It would not have been as easy as, as just pulling money out of an IRA, as if that was easy. Rather, The son's request entails selling off lands, herds of livestock, and going through a major upheaval of property and placement. And as such, when the son leaves, he's just not heading off to college or or trying to make it in the big city with, with plans of coming home on the holidays. The son is making a break. He's making a break with his family, he's making a break with his father, both both physically and psychologically. The son is essentially telling his father that his father is dead to him. So with this in mind, we might wonder what is going through the son's mind when when things take a turn for the worse and he is sitting in that pig pen. There could not be many indignities greater than caring for these unclean animals and for coveting the pig's slop. What motivates the the son's change of heart? Is he really coming to his senses with with a genuine recognition of all the wrong that he has done? Or is he just humiliated and motivated by his empty belly Jesus does not give us a window into the younger son's mind or soul. All we know is that he decides to return to his father and apologize. We do not know if this is simply uh, a genuine remorse or if he is being completely and utterly manipulative. When the father sees his son coming down that road— the father runs out of the house to greet his wayward child. By the standards of the age, his father is a complete and total buffoon. This is no way for a patriarch to act. He has forsaken the dignity he should have had as a head of household. He gave it up the first time when he gave his son his share of the inheritance, and now— now he's making it even worse by running, running out to his son to embrace him and kiss him, the son who treated him like dirt. Moreover, he doesn't even bother to listen to his son's apology. Rather, he just instantly dresses up the kid in fancy clothes and calls for a feast. The original listeners must have laughed they must have shook their heads in complete and utter disbelief when they heard this part of the story. This would never, never happen. And so isn't, with this all in mind, isn't, this, isn't the eldest son at least a little bit right? Or doesn't he at least have a point? How can the father just let the son back in as if nothing has happened? At the very least, We know that love entails boundaries. We are not called to become doormats for God. There are times where we need to restrict a loved one's access to the inside of our homes or to the inside of our lives, even when those people are our family members. And we do this not just in order to protect ourselves, but out of love for the other We might need to restrict someone from the fullness of a relationship because actions do have consequences and trust has been violated. For their own good, we might need to hold a loved one at arm's length, if only for a while, until things can truly change. How would you counsel a friend if her wayward child returned home broke after having spent your friend's life savings on partying? Would you run to join your friend's feast, overjoyed at their child's return? Or would you be worried at least a little bit about your friend's heart and pocketbook? So I don't think that we should be Pollyanna about this parable. The Father is a fool. The younger son is operating from a place of at least questionable motives. And the eldest son, who we tend to vilify, is the one who is acting responsibly, at least a little. I think to hear this parable afresh, we need to let the shock of this parable strike us in this way. And when we can hear this parable with shock, when we can hear this parable with wonder, then maybe we are ready to discover that this is the relational logic of the kingdom of God. The way of God, the way of God's kingdom is foolishness. It is super abundant welcome. It is overflowing love. The kingdom of God is forgiveness running ahead of our ability to ask for it. In this season of Lent, it is critical for us to keep in mind that we are forgiven first, and then we repent to embrace the forgiveness that that God has already given and offered to us. And yet, this is not to say that the forgiveness and love is forced upon us. There is no coercion here in this story. All of these characters are free. They are all free. If the older brother does not come in and join the feast, then he is free to keep himself out. If the younger brother decides to turn around and abandon the father once again, no one will stop him. They are free to be with the father. They are also free to stay away. And yet the father is also free. The father is free to love his sons no matter what, whether the sons will accept that love or not. The father is free to welcome them, whether they will be welcomed or not. The Father is free to love. As Rowan Williams points out in the book that we are reading in our Lenten class, the good news of the gospel is that we are powerless to change God's love for us. God simply loves us come what may. What is revealed to us in Christ's death on the cross is that God's mercy and grace will never, ever be thwarted. We are unable to change God's mind about us. Our sin, our failure, and brokenness will not dictate to God how God feels about us. God can and does always re- remake the relationship that we have broken. The cross is a sign of the freedom of God's love. When humanity rejected Jesus, we rejected the one who is the bearer of the love of God through his words and through his actions. But that rejection could never defeat Christ's love for us. For Christ's love God's love continues on as it always has. This, this freedom to love, is God's freedom and God's power. This is the freedom and power of God to vulnerably love us no matter what. Just as Christ is free to love, so too we are freed to love— whenever and wherever there is love and acceptance and welcome, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is emerging, is is breaking into our lives. When Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is revealing the nature of God's love, God's love for them. And so, too, when we gather and we proclaim that all are welcome at Christ's table, we are proclaiming God's love for each and every person. Wherever there is love, God is present. For God's love slips in through the cracks whenever two people who have been estranged come together and begin again to reforge the bonds of connection and union. God's kingdom breaks in whenever any of us can hear that we are indeed beloved children of God, and that nothing about our past, or our present or our future can change that reality or jeopardize our status as God's beloved children. That is true for each and every person. And this should indeed shock us. It should amaze us. For God is completely free. And in freedom, God chooses love. Amen.